This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 191 for Monday, May 24th, 2010. Chandra Sikar. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? I'm doing very well also. And we don't normally do this, but I wanted to send a special message to Allie, who wrote us in, and congratulations on getting a B on your test. So we're gunning for you. All right. Let us move on to today's show. So the first half of the 20th century was a productive time for astronomy, with theorists working out much of the science that we take for granted today. And one of these astronomy stars, pardon the pun, was <laughs> Subramanian Chandrasekhar, who determined the maximum mass of a white dwarf star and won a Nobel Prize. So, Pamela, another duo, partnership, the person and the robot. So today we're going to talk about the person who was the uh, inspiration for the robot, which is actually, I guess, you know, it's up there doing work today. So there's a lot to talk about the Chandra mission, but let's talk about the person. Sounds, sounds good. They're both full of a lot of high energy, so it works out. And and we were talking about this before, trying to sort of work out how to pronounce uh, his his name. Now, now Subramanian, that is... His patronymic. That's right. So that's almost like a, na- a last name. So it's it's it, it's, it's a n- different way of handling names than we're used to in Western languages. It's it's not your friend to friend name first, and then your family name or your patronymic second or third, but rather they start with the patronymic and then do the friendly person to person. So calling Chandrasekhar Chandra is is much like calling Elizabeth Beth. It's it's a nickname for the person's name and from here on out we're just going to call him chandra Sikar. or chandra right because we're, we're close we're like that <laughs> <laughs> All right. i'm so, actually academically sort of descended vaguely in a class by class way to chandra Sikar. i wonder is and and i'm unfortunately I don't, I don't know all my history here there is a number that mathematicians use to determine how many positions the they are this number that's right. I do have an Erdis number, but it has nothing to do with Chandrasekhar. And what's even cooler is the Bacon Erdis number, which what's, I challenge all of you. So what's your number? So it turns out I actually have a Bacon Erdis number of six, which, which kind of made me proud. It comes from papers that I've worked on with uh, Dr. David Lambert at McDonald Observatory to get to Erdis, and then uh, working with Kevin Grazier on the universe to get to Bacon. And I'm kind of stupidly proud of my Bacon Ertis number. Oh, I see. So you're connected to both Ertis and Kevin Bacon by yes. various degrees of separation, right? Okay. Yeah, someone should work out something like that for astronomy. How, what's your Einstein number? How far away removed are you as a I'm physicist from Einstein? pretty close because of some of the people that I've published papers with. Like three or four. Yeah, yeah. I should figure that out at some point. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, we're completely off topic. Um, but <laughs> so So... Then we'll, it's time for the history lesson. So who was Chandrasekhar? 
he was one of the most concentrated scientists, and that I didn't mean for that to be a pun, pun, but uh, one of the most focused scientists of the last century. He approached research with an intensity and a passion that has rarely been seen, I think it's safe to say. His best discovery in terms of, wow, that changed everything, may have been the understanding that when large enough stars die, they collapse to the point that the material is so packed together that it, it can't get any closer without actually changing states. So when the sun dies, it's normal every day, not too big, not too dangerous of a star. When it dies, it's just going to collapse down until the electrons start pushing on each other and via electron degeneracy pressure support the star as a white dwarf. But if a much larger star, something that might have started its life off as a 6 to 8 to maybe 10 solar mass object, when it dies, it leaves behind a core that's more than 1.4 times the mass of the sun. And something that's greater than this 1.4 times the mass of the sun, when it collapses down, the electrons go, no, can't, can't handle it anymore. And the electrons and um, protons actually will end up combining, releasing energy, releasing neutrinos, and the star collapses down into a neutron star. And if something is much, much bigger than that, even the neutrons can't push one another apart, and instead you end up with a black hole. Right, and we get the Chandrasekhar limit is this number, which is this maximum mass of a white dwarf star. So if a star somehow happens to gain more mass that pushes it beyond this, the Chandrasekhar limit, what's like 1.44 or something like that? Yeah. The times the mass of the sun, then it's, it's too much and it just collapses catastrophically and you get a supernova now the thing is he came up with that while on the boat from undergraduate school in india and he graduated college at 19 he came up with this theory while on the boat at the age of 19 to attend graduate school in cambridge well now so, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves so, so right. let's talk about his history then so chandrasekhar that's an indian name he, he grew up um, in Punjab in British India, which is now Pakistan. Uh, he started out turn, uh, speaking Tamil growing up. Uh, he comes from a Hindi family. and He actually comes from a scientifically famous family. His uh, uncle was C.V. Raman, who came up with the Raman effect, which we'll talk about in a different show. Um, nonetheless, really cool thing, needed to understand the splitting in spectra. And um, he was a Nobel laureate. So here we have Chandrasekhar growing up in the family of a prominent physicist. As a child, he was homeschooled. Uh, his father was an accomplished musician. He worked for the railroads. It was a, an interesting childhood that then led to him attending a Hindi high school and then Presidency College. And like I said, he graduated from college at 19 with his bachelor's degree. And then had to go to another country to get yeah. even better education, right? Well, it, uh, just as it is today, there's only a few really, really top colleges in the world. And at the time, the top college was probably Cambridge, arguably 
Oxford, maybe Harvard. There, there's only a limited number of really top schools you can have in the world. Cambridge was one of them. It remains one of them. And uh, he was able to get to go there for graduate school. And then he stayed on with a fellowship after that before going to the University of Chicago. Now, along the way, he got married to another woman from India who was another scientist as well, someone who actually had attended Cambridge with him, was at Trinity College. And one of the neat things in his biography is she actually not only became a stay-at-home wife in a lot of ways, but was in some ways his um, personal assistant for science. She'd read over his papers and offer critiques. So she was there to support him by just making sure he ate. If you're too busy of a scientist, someone usually feeds you. I'm lucky enough that my husband, when I'm working on grants, will feed me. Perfect. But she was there to help him in all aspects of his life. Right. And so you say he ended up at the University of Chicago? Yes. And uh, he, he was there throughout the entire rest of his career, with an exception during World War II when he worked on ballistics at the Aberdeen Proving Ground instead. But throughout his life, he was a very dedicated theorist, although he did have a, an office at um, the Yerkes Observatory. And while he was at Yerkes Observatory, he was still teaching his classes at the University of Chicago, which was a, a bit difficult and uh, led to him occasionally making insane drives through snowstorms. Um, there's one famous anecdote of... Uh, Anyone who could attended Chandra's courses. He, he was not the type of researcher who couldn't teach. Those, those exist. We, we wish they didn't. But it happens. You're a trained scientist. You're not a trained teacher. And Chandra was one of the exceptions, a lot like Fermi. He could just teach things amazingly well. And one day, during a particularly bad snowstorm, he was told, just don't bother. Why, why are you driving <laughs> the entire 200-mile round trip between Yerkes and the university to teach this class on stellar atmospheres? Well, the only two students who showed up in class that day were Sung Dao Li and Cheng Ning Yan, who, uh, if their names were pronounced correctly, would know who I just said. Um, they won the 1957 Nobel Prize in Physics. So he made that 200-mile round trip through snow. And it turned out the people who he took the time to teach, who he put the effort into, both went on to get Nobel Prizes before he did. And that's just kind of cool. And so, you know, he was a professor. He had an office at the observatory. But his research, you know, what's sort of the – how did that – where did his research really start – and what were some of the major advances that he made? Well, he, he started fully involved in stellar structure. This is where he worked on his theory of white dwarfs, uh, where he then went on to study stellar dynamics. And he just migrated through the different physics involved in stars, moving on to the theory of radiative transfer. Uh, eventually, he worked on black holes and... In his final years, he was working on the new field of gravitational waves. Uh, so always kept himself in highly mathematical fields. 
if, if you ever get the chance to read any of his books, they're very precisely written. No word that isn't needed is included, but the mathematics doesn't skip steps. It just goes through and does it right and does it well. And would these be books that, that your sort of regular person would be able to read or, or there's a lot of math in there? It's, it's solid math. If you were an engineering or science major in college, you might be able to survive this. The, the thing about stellar atmospheres is it's beautiful math. It's, it's, and this is someone who really doesn't like doing math, and a lot of relativity has reduced me to either throwing things or crying. But stellar atmospheres is the type of thing that it's a lot of algebra. You chew through it. There is some integration. You do need to know calculus. But you chew through it meticulously, and you can actually, on paper, build a star. And that's amazing, but it's overwhelming to look at. When I was an undergraduate, I got to take stellar atmospheres from Eugene Capriati, who had done his PhD work under Chandrasekhar. And I remember the first day of class sitting there, and this was my second year of college, so I'm sitting there at 19 as he spews equations across the chalkboard and I'm still writing down the top of the third chalkboard as he's erasing the first chalkboard. And by the end of that class with Eugene Capriati, I had the realization that I knew all the math I needed for the course. And dropping the course was not going to make it easier later. But it was the type of thing that I just had to sit down and consume. It's, it's, it's not something you can scan read. It's not something that you catch on too quickly. You have to chew it up and understand it. But if you have that basic perseverance with algebra and you have that basic perseverance with figuring out the calculus as needed, any of you out there could figure out how to build a star on your notepad or in your computer whether you would want to is the question. <laughs> but, so we've talked about stellar structure and white dwarves, and, but, but he did a lot of work in stellar dynamics. How, sort of what is that and how is that different? Well, stellar dynamics is basically the theory of how is it that stars move. That's, that's where the word dynamics comes in. And so you're looking at the statistical understanding of how is it that globular clusters keep their form, whereas open clusters drift apart? How is it that different systems evolve over time? For instance, our modern understanding of stellar dynamics allows us to finally understand that globular clusters actually beat like hearts. And for the middle part of Chandra's career, he was actually looking at the stellar dynamics of our own Milky Way galaxy. It's, it's not sexy work, but it's fundamental work that really helps us understand um, how it is that things hold their shape and change over time. Right. And, and up until some of the recent missions, the, like the WMAP, this was one of the ways that astronomers would try to get at the age of the universe. Right. It didn't work, but... <laughs> no, no, that's right. Yeah. But it was... It was, but at least you could determine, you know, how old they were and how they were changing, right? So, okay, so, so what did he work on next? So the next thing that he was looking at was radiative transfer. This, this is one of the fields of astronomy that is, often when you're in it, you think you're taking quantum mechanics. 
it's the theory of how is it that light is absorbed and re-emitted by nebula. It's the theory of how do we end up with the spectral lines that we see and that we don't see in stars. All of these different theories, that all falls into radiative transfer. And, and, and so, sorry, I, like, I remember we were talking about stars. Is this, this is, the, is this part of like the radiative zone of a star where... Right. Light gets from is you know generated in the core and then has to radiate from from atom to atom, slowly moving its way out through the radiative zone until it can hit the convective zone. And and the exact same physics that describes the radiative zone inside of a star is the same physics that applies to light passing through a cool nebula. It's just different parameters to solve the same type of problem. Now, there are different boundary conditions. Sometimes you have to worry about one set of physics, while in other cases you're going to worry about another set of physics being the dominant player. But it's the same concepts at play in both cases. And trying to figure out absorption, trying to figure out spectral lines, trying to figure out just how is it that light finally makes it to the surface of a star and makes it from one side of a nebula to another? These are interesting quantum mechanics problems that are difficult. And he spent a lot of years of his life looking particularly at different equilibrium states and um, how, how it is that things radiate. Right. When you say equilibrium, like, like for example, how a star can remain in a certain size where the light pressure pushing out matches the gravity pulling inward? Well, and, and not just that, but you have heat pouring into a nebula. It's absorbing some of the wavelengths, re-radiating them in all directions. Um, there's different cascade effects going on. And, and so at different temperatures, you even have nebula supported in different ways. They're just externally heated where stars are internally heated. Right. And I mean, this is an incredibly long career. I mean, we've, we're sort of looking at what he did in the 50s, the 60s. I know in the 80s, he worked on black holes. He, he kept doing science up until he died in 95. This is, this is someone who was born in 1910, was doing Nobel Prize quality work in 1930. Mm-hmm. And kept on doing cutting-edge research until 85. And he did get a Nobel Prize in 83. Yes, he finally got one. And it's funny, it was in some ways actually a disappointment to him because the Nobel Prize he got, admittedly I just did the exact same thing, looked at his earliest work and praised that. And he felt that it somewhat denigrated the work that he did later. It's it's sort of like saying you peaked at 19, dude. Right. Yeah, that would be pretty frustrating. But admittedly, it was his discovery which wasn't accepted for a long time. And part of the reason he went to the University of Chicago was to escape the peer pressure to change his theory that he was experiencing at Cambridge. He put up with so much stuff to push forward and get people to accept white dwarfs are real. Neutron stars are real. Well, they knew about white dwarfs, but neutron stars are real. Black holes exist. When that finally was accepted, it changed everything. And you get Nobel Prizes when you change everything. And so, and so which of those was the Nobel? Was, was it for, like, the degenerate matter? It, it was for his work on stellar structure, specifically the Chandrasekhar limit. Right. Um, it was a shared Nobel Prize as well. So... It, while it was his work that led to the Ch- Chandrasekhar limit, 
Um, it, it was all of the work that he had done on stellar structure that ended up getting him the shared Nobel Prize. And then you say that he passed away in 95. In 95, while I was in undergrad, it, it was actually really interesting to have him pass away with one of his students there, now as one of our most senior faculty, to talk about him over the years. Um, you, you got to hear the stories that you only find buried in the backs of biographies. From 1952 to 1971, Chandrasekhar was the editor of the Astrophysical Journal. And this was very much in the defining days of what's the difference between astronomy and astrophysics. Chandrasekhar was perhaps one of the very first people to work very hard to combine physics and astronomy. There were others who were Eddington and a whole group of people that he was part of the cadre of that developed this new field. And Chandra would set certain periods of his day that were only astrophysical journal. And if you tried to interrupt him with science, there was nothing you could do. He was going to send you away. There were other parts of his day that were strictly dedicated to then science. And if you tried to ask him a question about class or, well, the astrophysical journal, you're going to get sent away. And his ability to compartmentalize his life and to have absolute focus is part of what made him so good at everything he did. It, it makes me wonder in our modern day world of email where if I don't respond to something in 45 minutes, I'm getting a phone call, hey, did you get my message? Could this type of a scientist do the work he did? Because it was his ability to say, right now, at this point in my life, I'm only going to do stellar structure. Right now, I'm only going to do gravitational waves. His ability to segregate his time allowed him to do amazing things in a focused way that I don't know how you can do in an age of email. And I really respect the ability to focus that he had. You just don't answer your email. <laughs> but then the phone rings. <laughs> don't answer the phone. <laughs> but then the other phone rings. <laughs> you don't have another phone. But then they Skype me. <laughs> yeah, all right, you got me there. But, uh, yeah, it, it, I remember, you know, when we were at the uh, at the American Astronomical Society, there was a big party and you were kind of walking me around, kind of pointing out people like, oh, Nobel Prize. Oh, Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> pointing out people. And, and it's it's this connection. You know, we have this connection with people who now, you know, have done all this amazing work and yet... I think, you know, you can go and you can talk to them and you can yeah. find out their ideas and you can ask them questions and and hear their responses and their and that gift that they give of their interest in, in learning and knowledge and of the universe and then their professors and their you know, and that comes out every, every day with the people that they're that they're interacting with. I think that's what's really special about the field of academia that maybe you don't quite get with other celebrities. You know, I'm, I'm using air quotes here when I talk about celebrities, <laughs> you know, which is that you don't necessarily have that same connection with, you know, a famous actor or musician, you know, when you're working in their field. So I think that's, that's, that's a really special thing. And it's just amazing that you can, you can go and attend a class with a Nobel Prize winning, you know, physicist have them teach you about stellar structures, you know, and and then go to your other classes. Right. And what imagine what impact that would make in your in your life. So well, and, and some of the Nobel prizes that we have today have gone to some of the most giving people. 
uh, John Mathers is someone who I, I've seen very graciously talk to all sorts of people, answering their questions, uh, taking on new technologies to give talks in Second Life, uh, talking with undergrads at AAS meetings. Uh, another one is Barry Bloomberg, who admittedly got his Nobel Prize in medicine, but will accept him anyways. And uh, he loves astronomy, and he's now working with uh, a lot of the moon projects coming out of the NASA Lunar Science Institute and is tangentially uh, related to our moon zoo project that is, is coming out of this universe. And a whole bunch of my students met him, and they had no clue who he was. He was just this uh, friendly, older man, well-dressed, but looked like a professor, just another professor, and he walked down the road, talked to each of them about their posters, and like, yeah, we met an old guy. And uh, <laughs> one of my students, I had to like kick because he was talking to a pretty female graduate student. There's this old guy trying to ask him questions and who do you give priority to? And after the meeting, it just failed to occur to me that I needed to point out to my students that they'd had a Nobel Prize winner talking to them. Because in the moment, I knew better, but I should have told them after and forgot to. Right. And one of my colleagues was like, oh, my God, I just met Barry Bloomberg. And one of them twittered, oh, my God, that's so cool, to which I got to respond, yes, and he talked to you as well. <laughs> He's just such a down-to-earth guy and no right. one realized. Right. It was awesome. All right, well, we kind of went a little off, off topic in the end there. So, um, we apologize for the random muttering. Yeah, this is what happens yeah. when we talk about people. Yeah, I know, I know. I mean, you get all the all these anecdotes. So, again, next week, we're going to talk about the mission, which is a wonderful mission and one of the most productive missions that have, that have happened in, in recent times. So I'm looking forward to that. We'll talk to you next week, Pamela. Sounds great, Fraser. Talk to you later. This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today.